If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a debt. Well, I lost my spot. Oh, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you and all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Ty. And I'll just add, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So um, this is kind of a uh, this is kind of a tie it together sermon at the end of this text. This is the last week we'll be talking through this uh, section of Matthew 18. And um, I, I just want to kind of bring it all back together and remind us of what we've learned uh, in this section. And to begin, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that I, I understand why a lot of people struggle when they watch uh, the church, why they struggle to believe in the God that we serve because of the ways that they perceive us. Um, sometimes I think, um, I think this is especially drawn out in our day with the way that social media works, but they watch us going after each other publicly, um, the, the ways that we speak about one another in public spaces. Uh, people see that we hide the fact that we have issues until they're exposed, and then we tend to deny those issues, uh, is how it feels when you watch uh, the things that, that get out there in the media. 
Um, and all the while, the, uh, the other side of what Christians are often perceived as doing is acting better than others and leveling criticisms uh, at unbelievers. And if you think about it, these things just don't make sense. Uh, here we are, the critics, who, who can't seem to behave themselves and who seem to have issues with one another. And, and I understand how someone could look at that and say, I don't think this faith is really making people better. Uh, it doesn't seem to be working. But um, I also personally have felt, as I've observed these things in our world, as I've grown up and, and watched this over the years, that I trust Jesus more. And, and why? Why would I see and feel those two things? And I would say it's because of uh, sections of the scripture like this, where Jesus doesn't deny that these things are going to happen among believers. He actually assumes that they will, and he addresses them specifically. It's like we were told this was going to happen. We were told that Jesus came down to save and reconcile and build a church out of flawed, sinful people, and was going to teach us how to navigate our issues with one another. He didn't deny that we would have these issues. He's teaching us how to walk into them. So I, I think when I look at this, that the problem is that we just haven't represented to the world that this is just the way it, it's going to work. We are in process. Um, I think we tend to pr promote ourselves as if we have arrived when the truth is we're in process. So I want to recap this section because I actually think, as, as we said at the very beginning of all this, the idea of sharing this text during, during Alpha while we're going through Alpha is to say, I think one of our best evangelistic opportunities, how we can share the gospel, is to show the way that God is at work amongst us as flawed and broken people. I think that's one of our best strategies. So I want to talk again about the assumption behind this text, uh, the pathways that we've been given to reconcile, the motivation we're supposed to have, and then just end on what kind of story could we tell the watching world. So the assumption. This was week one. There will be conflict. Or week two, John talked about having hope amidst conflict. And then number week two, we said there will be conflict. Um, we have uh, different relationships to, to conflict, to these ki kinds of things. Some people are just attracted to it. Our family, we went to see the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Tucson Symphony, which, by the way, if that ever comes back around, you should go. To get to watch a movie with a live symphony playing the score was so cool. Um, but somehow, in the middle of the movie, uh, a woman, uh, I seriously thought it was part of the show, but this woman behind us says, get your hands off me, you beast. <laughs> and uh, we're like, what? <laughs> I look around, and, and anyway, she, uh, anyway, the guy, guy in front of her, I think, like, accidentally touched her leg, and they're standing up arguing with each other in the middle of the symphony, and, uh, and then there's this big, tall guy with a hat on, which is so perfect for Indiana Jones. And he steps up and he just says, all right, you two, let's take it outside. There are families here. And they just obeyed him. <laughs> like they just went outside with him. And he just took charge. He just stood up and was like, all right, follow me. I... And, and I, I still wonder if it was part of the show. I don't know. It wasn't. It definitely wasn't. This guy, the minute a conflict arose, legitimately was just like, I'll take care of this, right? Some people see conflict and they go, 
I'd like to get right in the middle of that and be a part of that. I'd, I'd like to lead us through this right now, right? Some people do. That guy did. He put his hat on. He put his little, uh, it was like an Indiana Jones hat. Um, others, right, with whom I personally relate a little bit more, would rather not. Um, the, you, know, you see some people in conflict, and you guys shared my story of Bisbee, where the guy got in a fist fight in the street and came into the coffee shop, and I'm like, what time is it? I got to go. Um, time for me to leave and let this happen without me here. Um, some of us, when we see conflict, we're like, I'd rather avoid that. That would be great. We have different relationships to conflict. And Jesus, in our text this evening, challenges both groups of people. It's, he doesn't say um, avoid conflict. He doesn't say, um, yeah, conflict is great. Get in the middle of it. He says things that challenge both types of people. To people like me, his invitation to go address things with people is actually an invitation into conflict. He's, he's not saying avoid it. He's saying perhaps you need to move into the conflict that you have with a person when you feel a certain way. Actually, you're going to draw the conflict out more by talking about it is the truth. Um, he says, I, I want you to move into it, but also not with a heart of winning not with a heart of domination, but with a heart of reconciliation. And that challenges the, the person that just loves to get in the middle of conflict. This isn't just about, you know, getting in there and feeling the power or feeling the adrenaline rush. It's about doing this with a heart of reconciliation. The aim is to gain back in this scripture, to gain back your brother or sister, not to alienate or drive them away. It's to gain them back. It's with a heart of reconciliation. So the assumption in the scripture is that not that you'll enter into com Christian community and find like a conflict-free safe zone. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could say, hey, come be a part of Mission Church. We're all great. You'll never have any issues with us. Um, I can't. I can't say that from experience. And I can't say it from the Bible. I will say if you enter into this community, just like any other one, you're going to meet other people. There will be downsides. There will be conflicts. I guarantee it. There will be. Um, but Jesus has given us a way to move toward each other in reconciliation that we can invite each other into. The pathways that Jesus gave us, the pathways to honest um, in-house reconciliation or something like that, um, are, are threefold. First, he said, um, try it on your own. I loved uh, sitting back and ha hearing Rod's service, uh, or, you know, advice in, in the service on last Sunday. Um, you remember what he said? What's the best way to honor your leaders in conflict? Don't bring it to them. Handle it yourself, right? I loved that. As a leader, I was like, Rod, thank you. Say it again. Say it again. If you could just handle it yourself, that would be a blessing, right? That would be so good. Uh, and that's Jesus' first piece of advice. He says, go to them alone. Um, and I think I should add this. Before you talk about them to anyone else, go to them alone, right? I think sometimes we hear that and we think, you know, I, I've been talking about them to people for about three months, and I think it's time for me to go talk to them. No, 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 no. Before you go talk to anybody else about them, go talk to them alone. Um, as soon as you realize there's an issue. For the conflict averse, this is an overwhelming idea, right? It's like, so you're asking me to go talk to all the people I have negative feelings about? Not necessarily. Maybe you need to like assess the feeling and just go, no, this doesn't, not everything needs to be said. But when it's significant, 
When it's significant enough, it's eating at you, it's going to cause a rift in your relationship, yes, go and talk to them. I'm, I'm learning. I've told you I'm, I'm of the conflict-averse variety. I am learning. It's usually less painful to address sins and breaches in relationship early than it is to wait. It's usually less painful. It feels more painful, but it's not. It's like a wound. You know, you get a, you get a wound on your arm and you go, well, that looks nasty, but hopefully it resolves itself and you just go about your day and kind of let it bleed and you kind of do your thing. Um, what happens? It might get infected. It might get infected. And does it get better? Not when it's infected. No, it doesn't. It's the, you treat a wound immediately. The sooner you treat it, the better. And I think the same is true of conflict. And Jesus knows this. He teaches us, move toward one another early, not just when it's really bad, um, not just when it's really bad. Um, go to them early. Um, now, I, I mentioned this a couple, uh, uh, several weeks ago, just the, the context for what's going on here. But remember, not long before Jesus had shared this wisdom, these words, there'd been uh, a, a bit of a conflict among the disciples. And I, I think this might have flowed from it. And Jesus had... Um, he had been, his disciples had seen some incredible things. They'd seen him glorified in front of them. They'd seen him cast out a demon. And I think they were really, you know, seeing his power and his authority. And they were, they were captured by this. And two of his disciples go to him and they say, what's it going to take? What is it going to take to sit at your right and your left in your kingdom? Now, think about this. First of all, they didn't understand Jesus's kingdom. They were thinking it was kind of a political rule, and they're thinking he only is going to have a right, you know, one right hand and left hand leader, and we'd like to we'd like to be there. Um, but they offended the other disciples. They all were misunderstanding Jesus, but they offended the other disciples because they wanted those positions for themselves. It was it was selfish. Now they, of course, these two disciples, they just want to help Jesus. They've got goals in life. They wanted to be a part of something important, but they looked over in their aspirations, their fellow disciples, and their fellow disciples were offended. And I think Jesus is teaching this, this section because of all of our conflicts, but I think he had this one in mind. And it's interesting because it'd be easy for me to say, I can imagine myself in that scenario saying, oh, James and John, they're just... They've always wanted to be a big deal in life. It's not really, that's just them being them. They just want to be at his right and his left. We don't really need to address this. That's just, they've always had goals. They're just being the way they are. But secretly, deep down, being bothered by it, right? Just being kind of like, I don't like this. And what happens is that gets infected, right? That's, that stews up. And then the next time a conflict comes up, there it is. It's right back on the table. And I think Jesus is teaching us to look back at these situations and say, you know, it would have been better if they talked to each other immediately and said, hey, you're not thinking about the rest of us. Like, go, go to them, talk to them, put it on the table. Um, it's better. As soon as you feel like you want to complain about someone, as, as soon as you feel that sense that you just kind of, kind of want to talk to your friend and let them know how annoying so-and-so is, that's probably the moment you should go talk to that person. You might learn a little more about their perspective. You might open the door to reconciliation. You might. But 
of course, as we said a couple weeks ago, Jesus knows that doesn't always work. You might go to them and it actually gets no better or even worse. You might go talk to them and you might learn their perspective and that you don't like their perspective. It's actually really offensive to you. So then Jesus teaches us to move into a more formal, even in a legal direction. Uh, He quotes the ancient Jewish law for reporting crime out of Deuteronomy. He says, bring one or two witnesses. Um, and, And the law in Deuteronomy says that Witnesses of a crime that when a crime is reported, it would only be established on the on you know the testimony of one to two witnesses. And this was built in to protect accused people. Jesus' disciples knew he wasn't just speaking in generalities, he was drawing from their law, from a legal proceeding. He was making this more serious. And he's trying to protect accused people. So when your conflict can't be resolved among yourselves, get a little more formal. Step two is to bring some impartial helpers along. And, and I taught on this a couple weeks ago, and I was trying to say, this mean, what this means is don't just bring a coalition of like-minded friends who are going to affirm your viewpoint. The reason Jesus is pointing back to this law, to actually law code, was to say, this doesn't just mean bring your favorite people who are going to see it your way. This means bring in some people who are impartial, who are going to be able to kind of judge between, between the two of you. And I think he's talking about people who are in the community who also know the two parties and want their best interests. But he says, bring, bring these people along, these wise and unbiased listeners who can sit in the conflict with you, listen between the lines, who know the parties but won't prefer one over the other. And that takes some work. You have to think through who that's going to be. But it's not just bring a friend along who's going to affirm you. It's bring, bring along some people who are impartial. Um, then um, Jesus assumes also that that might not work, right? And that leads to what Rod shared with us last week. There's a point where you have to le- reach out to the leaders of the church um, when this is in a community of believers. Uh, Rod mentioned that you don't just reach out to one of them. And I actually really appreciated that because I've experienced that sometimes where I feel like as a pastor, I'll hear about something and I'm like, oh man, now am I going to get into this just me? Is that a good idea? And what, he, what Rod brought up that's really good is the wisdom doesn't lie in just one of them. One of the leaders, it lies in the body, the collective wisdom of those leaders. And I found that to be true. I've gone to our elders with a, with a qualm that somebody has about somebody else, and one of them has had more information or more perspective, or they viewed a little, a little differently than me. And I've been really grateful for that collective wisdom. Um, so Jesus says, if it doesn't work, when you take two witnesses, take it to the leaders of the church. And Rod brought up this terribly bad word, um, submission. And, uh, and that is a call not to just come to them with, a, with the mindset of, you know, let's go get their perspective and see how we feel about it. Rod was saying, come to your leaders saying, what they tell me to do, I will do. And isn't that a terrifying thought? I know, I know. Um, I will say, I, I didn't write this in, but it's true. I have said to people as a pastor, I've said, I think something that's changed over the years from when I was younger even, was that when I used to go and talk to a leader in my church, like a pastor and elder in my church, I used to think what they say to me is gonna be a pretty serious thing. I think today, 
The perspective is like, if I have a spiritual leader in my life, I'm going to go to them and see what their perspective is, and I might consider it. And I would suggest you lean a little more into listening. Years ago, not so much due to conflict, um, I had a matter that needed to be taken to the, the elders of the church where I used to work. And this had to do with dating my wife, though I had gone through a divorce. I was unsure what to do with that. I was unsure if it was too soon. Um, and Michaela and I had just met. We'd gotten to know each other, and I'd been through this terrible thing. She knew all about it. And we were just, we didn't know what to do. And so we went to the elders of the church and asked, and actually we went to one of them and they booted it up to all of them. And all of a sudden I'm sitting in a meeting with at that church, like 20 elders putting my situation in front of them. And, uh, and they did not say what I wanted them to say exactly. They said, you need to wait. Uh, they said, in fact, do you have her phone number? And I said, I don't. And they said, you shouldn't get it. Um, you probably shouldn't talk to her yet. You should wait. You, you need time. You need time to heal and work through the stuff that's gone on in your life. And uh, that wasn't what I wanted to hear, but I knew I needed to hear something. So when you, you know you need wisdom and you go and you get it and it's not what you want, oh, what do you do? Um, I'm grateful to say that, that Michaela and I both took that advice and it's one of those things where years later, we, we have no regrets in saying we walked through that process with wise leadership, um, even though they didn't say exactly what we wanted to hear. They guided us well. They guided us very well. Now, how much more important would it be to submit? Not just, um, not just when you're you know, looking for, I was looking for wisdom. I wasn't in a conflict. But when you're in a conflict and the temperature has gone up, and, you're, and maybe it's hard for you to judge things because you feel offended, how much more important to submit to something when you're feeling that way, when conflict arises? It's, it's important. It's much better to submit than we think, um, even though it's scary. We need help, and God has promised to bring that help through one another. Now, Jesus, of course, also didn't promise that that would work. So if he says you, you, uh, you go through all these steps, you talk to somebody, you bring some impartial lister, listeners, you take it to the, to the leadership of the church, they say that might, that might end up in one or both parties still not wanting to participate, still not reconciling. And then he said, let the, uh, let the offender be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. And, and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's really important to ask the question, what did Jesus do when he interacted with Gentiles and tax collectors in the Bible? It's pretty clear. He loved them. He welcomed them into his presence. He offered them forgiveness and opportunities to repent. He loved them. He wept over them. He did not shun them. But he did not consider them to be his disciples. He had clarity on the relationship. He loved them. He was for them. But he did not consider that they were his disciples unless they chose to follow him and listen to them. I, I think that's the call, is you, you go through these steps and then you, there's clarity in the relationship, but that clarity does not mean that you don't hope for future reconciliation, that you don't offer good things, that you don't continue to love and be hopeful. And that can be really, really hard to do. But we put that in his hands and trust him to work through it. Um, 
Now think about this moment that I, I've described to us in the Bible where you've had the disciples and they've, um, they've disagreed with one, with, with, with one another. They've had aspirations that kind of didn't take into consideration their, fe- their fellow brothers. Um, what pulls these struggling and divided disciples back together? What pulls them back together? What challenges them to forgive the offense? What, what is it in their midst that changes things? And the answer to that is the voice of Jesus. Jesus is there with them. He's the one giving them the wisdom. He's the one telling them the parable and the story that exposes their hearts. It's his presence that's guiding them. And I want, you to, I want us to keep that fact in mind as we listen to these words of Jesus right here, where he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, what a huge statement. In this situation with the disciples, the deciding factor, the factor that changes things is that Jesus is actually there among them. And he's saying to us, when we work together, when we do these things, he will be there among us. He's saying, just like when I was present in your midst physically, when you listen to my wisdom, when you follow these things, I will be there with you. That's a huge statement. This, uh, these words, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, is actually referring back just a couple chapters for us as we read the book of Matthew. But that's where um, Peter makes this confession of faith, and he states that he believes that Jesus is, is God in the flesh. And then Jesus says to Peter, he said, you're right. And I I call you Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And we believe that when he says, on this rock, I will build my church, he's talking about that faith, that confession of faith. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you, he says to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here Jesus is saying it to all of the disciples. Now, generally, this is understood as as meaning this, that the judgments of the true church are considered binding because they are actually tied to the judgments of God. Now that, to be honest, if you take that fact, can be a little unsettling. I'll tell you why it unsettles me. I'm just going to throw my honest feedback in here. I've seen churches do a lot of nonsense. And it's hard for me to say, so what a church decides is what God said? Do I, am I really willing to make that leap? So why would Jesus even say this? Well, it's massively important to understand all the things he said. I feel like we have to slow it down. He said, where two or three are gathered. All right. This assumes that there's, and he's talking about these trusted leaders of the church working in unison. Then he said, in my name, and that they're asking for things through the Father. What does this mean? This means that they're there under the authority of Jesus in his name, 
with a deep understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done from the scriptures, that they're there asking God the Father in earnest prayer. And when that happens, Jesus says, he will faithfully enter in and guide the process, just like he did when his disciples were following him when he was here. He's saying, when you gather in my name, you work together and you're bringing this before me in prayer, it'll be just like when I was here. I will guide you. Now notice again, even when Jesus was here, the disciples themselves could be divided and off base. In this section of Matthew, well, that's what we're seeing. They aren't right all the time. They're not always on the same page. But Jesus brings them together, gives them wisdom, and instructs them. The presence of Jesus is key to this working, to there being hope that this could happen. Um, Look, maybe that does all make you a little bit nervous. And like I said, I get it. But if you're willing to even be open to the fact that there's a God or a higher power, how do you think that God would speak to humanity? One person at a time? Individuals make a mess of things too, right? One person at a time. How do you know when when a person is telling the truth? Like if I feel like God's telling me something and somebody else feels like they're God's telling them, them something, how do you decide? Actually, back to back to Michaela and I, back when we were dating, she had one older friend say, I don't think God wants you two to be together. And then she had another older friend say, I think God wants you two to be together. And then you go, uh-oh. Two people think they heard from God and they heard opposites. Now what? What do we do? It's very important that we have something outside of just individual opinions. That's why I think not only believers, but really like all societies know you need something authoritative outside of yourself by which you're going to judge decisions. You need things like scripture. Uh, societies need things like constitutions, right? Some standard to look at and judge what people hear and think and say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't meet the standard. Um, and then you need a shared discernment process. And for Christians, we have even more. We can speak to our Father in heaven. Don't we wish that all the scenarios in life were spelled out in the Bible, right? I think the Bible speaks to all types of situations, but it can't tell you exactly when to decide if someone's being honest or not. It can't tell you what color car to buy. It can't clear up all of your conflicts, right? That will take spirit-led wisdom by discerning people. There's, There's no other way. And Jesus is saying, when you combine that with asking the Father in my name, I promise you I will guide you. He promises that. So those are the pathways to reconciliation that Jesus gives. Go talk to people as soon as the offense arises. If it doesn't work, take impartial listeners to discern with you. If that doesn't work, take it to the church elders. If that fails, it's time for the elders to assess if these people are following Jesus or not. Not that you shun them or don't love them. You just have to discern it. So this leads us to the motivation. What's the motivation behind all this? And this is very important. You could do all of this with the wrong motivation. And we learn the motivation in the parable Jesus teaches right after because Peter asked the wrong question, but one we can all understand. He says when he hears this, so how many times do I need to forgive one who sins against me? Up to seven? That's a lot, right? Like I legitimately think about like if somebody offended me seven straight times and I had to do it again, I'd be really thinking, I think I've done plenty here. 
I think we've gone far enough, right? It's, it's an understandable question. He's like, how far is far enough? He's not even doubting Jesus's message of forgiveness, by the way. He's just saying, I don't have to do it more than seven times, do I? He's in with the forgiveness. He just wants some clarity when he can kind of consider the whole tax collector thing there. He's like, so can I consider him like a Gentile now, please, after seven times? I'd like to move on. But it was the wrong question. It was the wrong motive. The motive was, how do I get out? Right? And I understand that motive. He asked, Lord, and I think he was asking this very sincerely, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his, on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. What we can't read, what we miss there in, our, in, in the English language is that this debt would literally have taken multiple lifetimes. It's like billions of dollars. It's, an, it's impossible. It's ridiculous. But then when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This takes a few months to pay off. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is how long? Multiple lifetimes. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is, this is Jesus coming down hard right here, right? We talked about this parable a couple of weeks ago too and just a quick review when he says seven, 77 times, that could be read 77 fold and it's a reference that any Jewish person would have recognized in Genesis 4. And this is where the first society based on vengeance is formed by Lamech who said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, mine is 77-fold. And Jesus is essentially saying, I want your commitment to forgiveness to be as radical as the most vengeful empire is, is committed to vengeance. I want, I want you to be the prototype of being utterly committed to reconciliation, is what he's saying. I want my people to be so committed to forgiveness that they put to shame the commitment level of the most brutal empire. Now, how would you develop such a deep commitment? How could you? Well, Jesus tells the story and essentially is saying, you'd have to understand how radically you have been forgiven. That's the only way to, for you to forgive this way. You have to understand how hard it is to forgive you to forgive someone who's hard to forgive. The story of this man's debt is a, is, a, is a story of a debt that we can't even comprehend. It's like, I don't know, 
It's like somebody goes up to Elon Musk and like takes every dollar he has, times it by 10, and just burns it somehow because you can't burn crypto. But, you know, it's like he, it's his unpayable debt. There's no way you're going to pay it back. Yet he's utterly forgiven by this merciful master. And then this fellow servant of his, who he's not even a master over, by the way, they're fellow servants. They're peers. He won't forgive a peer when his master forgave him this incredible debt. He wants him punished. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you are unforgiving, if you withhold forgiveness, then you must not understand the depth of the cost it took to forgive you. If you come in asking the question of when can I get out? When can we see punishment happen? When can I get out of this relationship? You're asking the wrong question because you don't understand my heart toward you that said, how can I win you over? How can I get you to see how much I love you? That was Jesus's posture toward us. How can I help you understand my heart for you? I'll pay anything. If you look at your life and think, I'm not too bad. Seriously, I think we have to ask this question. If you think of yourself before God and you go, you know, in comparison, I'm a pretty easy to love person. You have the problem Jesus is speaking to. If you appraise your life and think I'm pretty forgivable, unlike those people, pick your category, right? Any category the homeless, the addict, the irreligious, the other political party, the other ethnicity, whichever one you want it to be, whichever one it is for you. I know when God looks at me and them, he can see the difference and it's me. Then you have the problem Jesus is speaking to. If you lean that direction, the hardest words of Jesus are for you here. While the one willing to plead for mercy is close to the kingdom. If you're asking how much do I have to forgive, it's a bad sign. It should cause us to pause and ask, I must, you know, what is it that I'm unaware of about myself? But on the flip side of that is the right motivation. And that is that the Christian should know it cost Jesus his very life to forgive me. Even if I were the only human on the planet, Jesus would have had to have given his life to forgive me. Right before uh, this teaching on reconciliation, Jesus taught um, another, another story, another parable where he talked about the 99 sheep and the one where he said, you know, that the kingdom of God is like, like a shepherd who has, you know, 100 sheep and just one gets lost and he leaves behind the 99 and he goes searching for the one you need to understand that's not talking about some lost, crooked person out there in the world. Like, at one point, that was you. That was you. And that everyone you see, God could extend that kind of mercy to. And you should want God to. And that's hard when you're mad at somebody. Right? That's the call. Jesus wants us to align with the heart of God for the lost, not to ask how quickly can I get out of trouble, get out of conflict, but how much would I be willing to give? How much do I want to see God have mercy? When we have that motive and we look at the flaws and failures of other people, we compare it to what we've been given, the very life of Jesus, 
and we should have hope for their reconciliation unto the death. We should, we should say that God, even if they sinned against you for 99 years and on the last day they turned and asked you for mercy, I hope you give it to them because of what you've done for me. And when that's the motive, you'll treat all of the tax collectors and sinners and your, you know, whatever category of person fits into that realm for you with compassion. We should begin to have tears in our eyes when we see people who are separated from Jesus and have a longing that they would be loved and known as opposed to a longing to see their judgment and exclusion. And then what kind of stories would we tell if that was our heart, right? If that was our heart, would we blast other Christians for their views on social media, right? If that was our heart, would we get out there and point at all the secularists and how foolish they are compared to me? Would we? Is that how we would treat people who we long to see reconciled to God? No. We wouldn't. Rod last, uh, last week talked about um, the scripture that talked about when, it, you know, why do you take each other to court? You should settle disputes among yourself. Why not be why not just be defrauded? And I thought about that. I was like, man, it feels like in our day, not, not that Christians don't take each other to court. I'm sure we do. I'm sure the court records are full of all kinds of Christians taking each other to court. But we take each other into the court of public opinion and we just blast on each other for every way that we're, you know, the other person is wrong. We shouldn't do this. It feels like sometimes when I watch how we portray ourselves, we're either virtue signaling, like kind of acting like influencers, like look at the good things I'm doing, um, or we're slamming the views of others. Whether it's our unbelieving neighbors or fellow believers we disagree with, there's got to be another way. There's got to be a way to represent Jesus publicly without moving in either one of those directions. And I actually think this portion of scripture offers us a way forward. What if we told the stories that were honest, that showed even some of our flaws and failures, but points to the way that the grace of God has taught us to reconcile? What if we pointed people to the ways in which we have been wrong and the grace of God has moved us toward being more humble? What if we told the stories of people who were at odds with each other, even didn't like each other in the church, who sought Jesus' help and he was there and he showed up? Such stories wouldn't signal our virtue, but the goodness and mercy of God. Such stories wouldn't need to condone wrong behavior, behavior, but wouldn't revel in judgment and exclusion. I think that our stories of Jesus helping us reconcile are some of the most powerful evangelistic tools. First off, think about this. Matthew did not hide this story. Matthew, when he thought about telling the story of Jesus... He told a story of disciples who were greedy and exclusionary of the other and wanted to be a Jesus' right and left. And then he told the story of Peter who didn't want to forgive his own brothers. And he told the story of how Jesus intervened and taught both of them. Matthew told us these kind of stories and it's encouraging to us. It teaches us. What if we told those kind of stories about how Jesus shows up in our midst today? What if we told stories that put Jesus at the center and magnified the mercy of God and encouraged people to have mercy on one another? How much more powerful could that be? And Jesus put that kind of 
that kind of story at the center of our worship. We're given two sacred rituals that are meant to shape us. Baptism, by which we understand our identification with Jesus and our inclusion into himself and his people, which also involves having to be like buried and washed. Like those are things that are very humiliating, but raised up and cleansed, things that point to the goodness of God. And then we have the Lord's Supper. And at the Lord's Supper, every time you guys do what I just love to see every week where you line up and you come forward and you receive it, is you're coming forward admitting, I needed Jesus to die for me. That's what it cost. And then you're sent out from this table to do what? You carry that gospel, that good news out into the world. The good news is that Jesus has done that for me. The good news involves that's what was required to cover over my sin. But you carry it forward and say, this is the kind of God that we serve. And that's a beautiful story to tell. It places Jesus and his mercy at the center and it sends us out into the world to be agents of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul wrote this to a church full of issues in Corinth. He said, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have a reconciling God, and so we can be reconciled to one another. So come and receive his grace by faith. I'm going to do a couple things here. I'm going to leave two minutes of silence um, in just a moment for us to pray, and maybe that's an opportunity to come before God. Believe me, in preparing these sermons over the last several weeks, what has crossed my mind the most are, is my un, my my tendency not to want to forgive. Um, I assume I'm not alone. I assume there, there's some examining of our hearts that needs to be done. Um, also, maybe, maybe for some of us, when you heard that thing about, you know, do I see myself as, as bad as I am? You may have responded in two ways. Some of you may, may have a really negative view of yourself or you're always talking down to yourself. And you need to see, you don't, you don't need to stare at the darkness in your heart. You need to stare at the goodness and the love of God that would, would reach down and go after you. You're the one. There were 99, and you were the one he went after. For others of us, it's kind of hard to take an honest self-appraisal, and some of us think we are better than others, and we need to come before God. And don't revel in the fact you don't need to get all down on that, but go, God, can you show me the state of my heart, not so that I feel like trash, but so that I can understand the depth of your mercy. However God leads, I, I hope that you would take that two minutes to pray and uh, just go to him with any of those things. We're going to do three things the church always does together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, which I've already explained to you. We're going to sing together, which is where we try to sink these truths deep into our hearts. And we're going to give. We have a giving tablet in the back. You can always set up recurring giving. And the idea of this is that we respond to God's generosity to us in a very tangible and generous way, giving back to his mission of reconciliation through this church 
and through the people that we support. So um, pray with me, and we'll enter into our two minutes of silence. Father, you are a good and gracious God. We really want to lean into being your people. We want to understand what it was like for those disciples to walk with you and have you show up in their midst and guide and give us wisdom. Um, on our own, we mess this up. We really do. We pray that we would, I, I loved what the kids wanted to pray, that they would see you return so their faith could be strengthened. I want to add to that, that we would see you intervene in our, in our issues and our problems, and that we would have a real sense that your spirit is at work in our church and our faith would be strengthened. I pray that you would send us out with the message of reconciliation, that we would be honest with our flaws, but full of hope, and that we would open our mouths and share it with our friends. I pray that you would do the work that you have set before us in our midst and give us the boldness to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, and lead us now as we pray.